special episode of Is That a Fact? We wanted to explore why some people remain hesitant to get one of the COVID-19 vaccines, despite growing evidence that inoculation is the key to returning to something resembling normalcy. I'm your host, Dara Warland. We were curious about how much misinformation is to blame for that hesitancy, or if it's legitimate concerns about the safety and effectiveness of the vaccines that's giving people pause. So we turned to Dr. Erica Pon, who is the Deputy Director of the California Department of Public Health Center for Infectious Diseases, and Brandy Zadrozny, a senior reporter for NBC News who covers misinformation, extremism, and the internet. But before we dive in, I should mention, I'm fully vaccinated, and you'll hear in the episode how I feel about vaccinating my twin toddlers when they are eligible. The decisions we make about our health and that of our families are deeply personal. They're influenced not just by the facts, but by our own values and beliefs. Being skeptical and wanting to explore the available facts before making such important decisions is at the heart of news literacy. So stay curious. We hope this episode will help you do just that. We'll start by exploring the science of the vaccines with Dr. Pon. How much of a barrier would you say vaccine hesitancy is to our achieving herd immunity, at least here in the United States? I do think vaccine confidence is the other way we've been framing it, is an important element of a middle ground group of people who, and we've seen this with other vaccine acceptance as well, historically, and often with those communities getting good information, um, getting sort of trusted messengers, trusted communities um, on board is often all that's needed. I think there's another sub-segment that is really kind of more firm in, you know, what we sometimes call the rejectors. Um, I do think uh, with vac- the vaccine sort of people in that middle ground, I think we have a lot of opportunity um, to, if, if we can get most of those people to get vaccinated, I do think we can actually get to community immunity. And I think there's a, a lot of sort of variation in how we're all defining that as well. So should we be using the term vaccine confidence instead of vaccine hesitancy? It sounds like sort of a more positive way of phrasing the same thing. That is something that yeah we're starting to do and, and hearing that uh, might help reframe a bit as well, yes. How much do you think misinformation and even disinformation might be to blame for low COVID vaccine confidence? I do think it's it's definitely a component. False information can spread very quickly, especially in our kind of modern day with social media and the internet. And often, of course, really important conversations are happening with people. Uh, peers and friends and family members. Um, And here at the Department of Public Health in California, we have a dedicated trust and safety team that's been monitoring for myths and disinformation online so that we can better tailor and target all of our outreach efforts um, and also flag posts for tech companies to, to note if we see sort of false information out there. Oh, that's really interesting. So given that you've been tracking some of this misinformation and disinformation, what would you say are some of the most common misconceptions about the COVID-19 vaccines? A couple that I would mention that I I hear most commonly and that we're seeing are a lot of concerns that uh, the process was rushed and that things were developed too quickly, especially with the kind of billing of operation warp speed. So I think that's one. 
The other one that's been interesting to me is if there's any impact on fertility. And that seems to be a very common myth out there. And I personally am not entirely sure why, although that's been a common myth with other vaccines as well. Um, but there's you know, absolutely no data to suggest that is true. When the pandemic started, I think what we were hearing was the record for bringing a vaccine to market was something like four years, which I'm sure struck fear in everybody's heart. It did in mine. And so the idea that we could bring a vaccine to market in record time, you know, cutting out three years, basically, of research time is understandably very nerve wracking for people, right? So can you talk a little bit about how quickly it came to market and, you know, how rigorous the studies were? I think it's really important for people to know that all those previous vaccine trials really helped inform this rapid um, development. And I think this was the highest priority for multiple manufacturers and the federal government and other governments. People were really dropping everything else and prioritizing just like they were for other parts of the pandemic. And that's really part of this sort of speed as well. And I think also a lot more collaboration that um, sometimes typically doesn't happen if people are competing for a market. I think the other really important point to emphasize is that you know, again, no actual steps were skipped. It's just that it was a highest priority. And I think it was in the midst of really high levels of disease transmission. So the manufacturers were able to gather and analyze that safety and efficacy data and accumulate enough cases um, very quickly because there were high levels of disease exposure. Um, so the usual numbers of participants and cases were gathered they made sure they gathered enough to get statistical significance. Uh, and then all the steps also, as far as approval, were again prioritized at sort of the FDA level. I think we in California also, and worked with other states to have an additional group that had some crossover with some of these federal advisory groups, but um, a scientific safety review work group to also reassure us that they felt like they looked at all the steps that were followed, all the steps were followed, nothing was skipped. It's just that, again, I think it was using prior technology, prior research, building upon that to very quickly bring something to market. Okay. So for people who are on social media, and I definitely have people on my feed who are saying, you know, I'm not going to be a lab rat in this grand experiment for this untested vaccine. Uh, what would you say to them? We have administered in the United States over 260 million vaccine doses um, to over 150 million individuals. And I'd say that the science and the technology informing vaccine development, again, from decades of research informed this rapid development um, of these safe and effective vaccines today. We have never been able to accumulate this much safety and effectiveness data so quickly. So, of course, the numbers I just said are after those clinical trials, but seeing million, over 150 million people, I don't think we've ever had that much data within a few months to look at. Um, so, and I also just want to emphasize that getting vaccinated will get us all past this pandemic and back to normal. Uh, I was actually just noting this week that uh, even countries like Taiwan and Singapore, who had really tight public health control previously, are seeing cases again and having to impose restrictions because they don't have enough people vaccinated because they, they emphasize the other parts. But now even with those tight controls, and uh, both of those happen to be more like islands, they're seeing cases again. And so they're really needing to motivate people to get vaccinated because this is really our long-term protection, right, to get vaccinated and protect ourselves so we can get back to normal. 
Okay. Well, I want to talk a little bit about adverse events, which are part of any clinical trial and a risk with any kind of vaccine. So, you know, we've obviously all heard about the small number of women, and it is a very small number of women in the grand scheme of things who experience blood clots after receiving the Johnson and Johnson vaccine. I've also seen stories of like women's menstrual cycles being disrupted by the vaccine. And there's something called COVID arm where you develop a rash at the injection site, which could be maybe the result of an allergic reaction. So how much of a risk is there of adverse events resulting from the vaccine? Or do you think these reports are really just overblown? I think what we did see with the pause for uh, the Johnson Johnson vaccine is our monitoring system working and seeing this really rare outcome be noted and paid attention to, and, and then gathering more evidence to really look at the benefits versus the risks. Uh, I think there are common side effects that we see with other vaccines, other injections. So some of that is really, we often talk about, you know, it's your immune system working when you get that vaccine. And after I got the Johnson and Johnson, definitely that night, I was really tired. I had a low grade temperature and I was better within, you know, a couple of days and felt like my immune system was working, but then there are many people who get vaccinated that don't have any side effects. Um, but those, those are all common things. And again, I think what's important to, get to know is that we have this vaccine adverse event reporting system that any person who gets vaccinated and certainly any clinical provider that administers the vaccine can report to. And all of those reports are investigated and we're not seeing any other signals so far. And again, over 150 million people have been vaccinated. So I think I feel really reassured that our system is working. Um, we have a good system in place. This happens a lot with other anecdotes, happens with flu vaccine too. People seem to think they're getting the flu from the vaccine. But actually, if you look at the placebo versus vaccinated people in any given winter season, uh, there's no difference between the people that have some of those same side effects um, with placebo and, and vaccine. And another question you're asking, and I think one thing that is really important and true is that a lot of it is around what your personal experience is, what your, the people around these personal experience. So I think continue to get good information to people to have these conversations is really important. Can you explain to our listeners what the Vaccine Adverse Event Reporting System, or I think it's pronounced VAERS, is and how that plays into vaccine misinformation? Essentially, it's a national reporting system, and any person who's been vaccinated can report to it, and also any clinician can report to it. And it's a way that uh, that information is gathered. Um, every report is looked at and investigated. Anybody can report and then gets investigated. It's a much longer investigation to then determine if if uh, it is thought to be causal. So just because it reported the system doesn't mean a vaccine has caused the events that are reported, but it is how we gather that information. And certainly that is how we learned again about um, these rare and unusual blood clots. And uh, I think a very effective system here in the United States. Some people who are reluctant to get the vaccine say it's because they've already had COVID, they have antibodies and they don't need it. Is that a correct assessment? No, it's not. And I'm glad you asked. And it is actually another common, I think, misunderstanding. So we've seen in the lab, if you look at people's blood who've been infected versus gotten vaccinated, there's a much stronger immune response uh, from the people who've been vaccinated. So, and especially I think to protect against other variants that are evolving, it's really a much stronger uh, immune response again for people who've been vaccinated. So even if people have documented an infection in the past, we really strongly encourage you to get vaccinated to protect you from ongoing disease transmission. And while rare, we have seen people get reinfected as well. Over the course of your career as a medical professional, would you say you've seen a growing distrust 
of the healthcare or medical community and like of science more generally? I certainly think there are trends and ebbs and flows. And I think in many ways, there's a lot more empowerment of health consumers to be able to look into information and advocate for themselves. And so I think that is a really positive thing. But then I think it is hard. And even just talking again with personal conversations and hearing where people are getting information and not necessarily knowing where those reliable resources are. And I can relate to that with a field that's not my own and just sort of trying to get certain information about, um, you know, another area that's not my own. So I think it, it has ebbs and flows. I think there have been a lot of other factors as well, a lot of other social factors that have influenced this. I do think increasing controversies happened over the role of government, you know, people's beliefs about how much control, for example, public health should have or or government should have over people's individual decisions and then how that weighs into uh, overall public kind of harm. And then I think it's important to just point out, I think, you know, the structural racism that we've seen uh, in different aspects, including our healthcare system, have absolutely impacted, I think, levels of distrust in uh, certain communities. And I think we need to address both those issues as far as access to care, good information, equal care, along with really getting good and accurate information out. Absolutely. So full disclosure, I am vaccinated. I got the Moderna vaccine. I got both doses. I didn't really have much of a reaction, but I also have twin three and a half year old girls. Mm -hmm. And I imagine that in the not too distant future, they will become eligible for one of the vaccines that's on the market once it's been fully tested and vetted. But I have to admit that I'm a little hesitant. They've gotten all their other vaccines on schedule. But, you know, I think like any parent, it would be hard for me to forgive myself if they were among the very small percentage of people who who do have some kind of adverse event as a result of the vaccine. So I'd say I'm probably about 90% of the way there. So what would you tell me and other people like me to get me that extra 10%? (laughs) Yeah, no, I think all very um, important and valid concerns. Uh, I'm a parent as well. All my kids are a little older and actually I'm very excited to say they're in this current age group that has just about to be authorized to get vaccinated. What's important to think about, especially knowing that your kids have gotten other vaccines and for other parents that have trusted other vaccines, again, all of the research that has gone into these vaccines has been really built upon prior vaccinations. Um, There's no reason to believe, although again, this won't get authorized until there's at least a minimum amount of data. But again, with 150 million adults that have already been vaccinated um, with these three options, there's no sort of physiological reason. There's no history that I'm aware of, of vaccines that were shown to be safe in adults that were then somehow had more adverse effects in children. So there's not a physiological reason. And I think the other thing to keep in mind is we are turning this thankfully into a vaccine preventable disease. And we've been reminding people this week that uh, while in general, the the worst outcomes were certainly the most elderly. We have had 21 pediatric deaths here in California. So again, if it's preventable, then, um, you know, I think again, the benefits far outweigh the risks and there's no theoretical reason. And I can say that both as a parent, um, as a pediatric infectious disease specialist, I have a lot of trust and faith in vaccines. We've really 
you know, gotten rid of a lot of other important diseases because of vaccines. And I think this is the next one. And I think, again, we've never accumulated this much safety data in such a short amount of time. Uh, last I've heard is we might have some data by fall for the under 11 year olds. I think the five to 11 might be the next group. And then the next one after that might be where your kids are. But um, those are all things I would say to reassure. And if my kids were three and a half, as soon as it was available, if I saw that clinical data and that, um, again, these other entities that are really the experts, the CDC advisory committee, if they all sort of agree and endorse, then I would absolutely sign my kid up as soon as I could. So more generally for people other than me and people in my position, what's the best advice you can offer anyone who might have low confidence in the vaccine that might push them over the edge? Really getting us all, the more people we can get vaccinated, the more um, we can get beyond this pandemic. And at some point we hope to get to just sporadic disease or we were able to eliminate certain diseases like measles in the United States. And then we saw more disease again when we saw unvaccinated populations. So this is very much the same. And I think what's um, even more concerning about this particular virus is people can be infected and infect others without any symptoms, you know, almost half or more, right? You've seen the different studies. And so we need people to get vaccinated to get back to our normal lives. We also don't know enough yet about the long-term impacts of any infection. Even people who have had infections with no symptoms, we're starting to see now concerning data about, you know, and we don't know yet what predicts who's going to have these long-term impacts, sort of the fog, people talking about the long COVID and um, there are heart impacts, there are brain impacts that we're just still learning and understanding. So it's a vaccine preventable disease now. And I think, again, the more we can get people, the more we can keep it out of our communities. And I think the other thing that's important is, we need everyone to get vaccinated so we can decrease transmission and not allow more of these variants to evolve because this virus needs to keep, you know, transmitting and replicating in order to have more variants that can escape the vaccine. But if we get people vaccinated, then the virus won't have that opportunity. Achieving like herd immunity, essentially, is one way to keep this from becoming what some people would call a super virus. Correct. Like the way the virus is going to be able to learn how to escape vaccines and continue to survive, if it will keep looking for our vulnerable people, right? So the ones who um, aren't protected. And um, it's very clear, like what we're seeing nationally is that more and more young people are becoming infected, right? Because we've vaccinated more of our older population and this virus will continue to do that. So it will continue to find our vulnerable. Um, and so people really should protect themselves and the people around them. Thank you so much. I really appreciate your time today, Dr. Pond. Really valuable, important information. Great. Well, thank you for helping us get good information out there and addressing the issues. Now that we've explored the research and data behind the vaccines, we'll talk to Zadrozny about the cluttered landscape of misinformation that has been obscuring them. We're joined by Brandy Zadrozny, a senior reporter for NBC News covering misinformation, extremism, and the internet. Brandy, thank you for joining us to talk about the impact of misinformation on COVID-19 vaccine hesitancy today. Thanks for having me. Would you say there's a difference between anti-vaxxers and people who just don't want the COVID vaccines? Yes. So I think of anti-vaxxers as this really small community of people who are against specifically childhood vaccinations and have been part of this community for a long time, like two decades. 
And childhood vaccines have always been really, really popular, even though this small, small, small group has been very, very vocal. In the last 20 years, anti-vaxxers have really made some progress persuading new parents and, you know, maybe woke grandparents uh, to be afraid of vaccines. But again, it's still just a really small community. At the same time, recruits were really limited, right, to those moms and grandparents. But then COVID happened and that brought this whole new audience, literally it was everyone in the world was now looking for information about vaccines. At the same time, you know, a lot of people had reasonable questions. So when I think about people who don't want to get the vaccine or don't want to get the vaccine yet, I think it's really important to not lump them in with this dedicated movement, um, which is a movement of misinformation around making people not want to get vaccines or not believe in vaccines generally. Most of the people who are questioning vaccines now, in fact, had their own children vaccinated. So I think that distinction, yeah, is really important. Is it worth debunking, you know, this misinformation? In some cases, it goes as far as being like a conspiracy theory about vaccines. Is it worth sort of taking some of the biggest claims that they make about the vaccine and why you shouldn't get it? I think fact-checking is important. There's research out there that says that Um, Twitter and Facebook have both released things recently that say, you know, that when you have labels on things, people are less likely to click on it. It's front loading. It's literally front loading, right? It's giving people the correct information first. And then if you want to see it anyway, fine, you can click through, but you already have that in your brain that this is false for this reason. So I think that's really helpful in terms of what I do. I work on a sort of different arm of journalism where I'm not just fact checking, but I'm trying to understand the networks and the machinations and the the way that these campaigns work. So I want to understand the method that people are using to get misinformation out and the technologies that help support that spread and the people that are harmed in the meantime. But to your question, like, is it worth it? Golly, the boom in in belief in this misinformation has really made me question a lot of what we're doing. And I think that that's always sort of a helpful place to be reassessing, like, what kind of journalism are we doing? Is it moving the needle towards truth? Um, Is it further entrenching people? Yeah, I don't know the answer to that. I guess what I mean is specifically point by point, is it worth saying, okay, people are saying that we're vaccinating Americans in order to put a microchip in them. You know, this is false because like, is it worth going point by point like that? Or is it just better to sort of expose people to these systems of misinformation the way you're talking about? I mean, I think why not both? If people believe that there's a microchip embedded in this vaccine, then I think it's pretty helpful to say and have, you know, someone explain why microchips can't fit through the head of a needle or something, you know, like, or a syringe. I think that that is, that's great. I think that hopefully that will persuade a lot of people. What I think goes hand in hand with that is showing people the larger picture and saying, um, you're seeing this insane conspiracy theory because you're on a website who makes money serving it up to you and is in bad faith. And here is the background of, of this company. And I think that, that both of those sort of go hand in hand when you can see why people are spreading misinformation and you can, like, I I think of the example of, um, America's frontline doctors like that. Remember those group of sort of wild um, doctors, they stood in front of the Supreme Court steps and they had like, I don't know, three people in the audience. And they said, uh, hydroxychloroquine will cure you. There is no problem with COVID. And there's literally like three people out there for their, I'm using my air quotes, press conference. But 
it went everywhere. And why did it go everywhere? Because they had invited a website to come document that. And then that right-wing website put it on Facebook and millions of people saw it. Now, who was behind America's Frontline Doctors? A Tea Party group. Understanding that is so much easier for me. I'm a narrative story kind of person. And I think a lot of humans are, it's easier to t- understand like why you shouldn't believe it. Not only because it's not true, but there are people trying to manipulate you for political gain or money or whatever it is. Absolutely. Yeah. I want to talk about Republican hesitation and particularly Republican men and even evangelicals hesitation to get the vaccine. Are they misinformed because they're living in like a echo chamber? How do you explain that? What happened in March of 2020 sets the stage for for what we are seeing now, which is in vaccines, wide mistrust from ultra conservatives, from evangelicals. What we see is a polarization in how people viewed COVID right from the start. And a lot of that was because um, government officials, they had to respond, right? And so we're already in such a polarized environment. When governors started locking down states, we had people come out who were your normal, they weren't anti-vaxxers, they hadn't thought about vaccinations at all, but they came out against the lockdowns. Who also came out against the lockdowns were anti-vaccination activists. And so in the spring, we saw a heavy cross-fertilization between militia groups, libertarian groups and extremists like the Boogaloo people, and then just your Second Amendment militia type people, and then the Patriot Party, Trump supporters, and then also the anti-vaccination movement. So those people all sort of like melded together and they generally, you know, aligned under the banner of anti-government, you know, don't tell me what to do. It's my freedom. And so that's when we got saw the anti-mask narrative, anti-lockdown narrative, and now it's, it's morphed into the anti-vaccine narrative. Right. It's like COVID denial moving into vaccine resistance. Much has been made also of uh, hesitancy within the Black community to get vaccinated. You know, since original reports of that, that's been sort of rolled back a bit, that maybe it was a bit overstated. Do you think that concerns in the Black community about the vaccine have been addressed or you know, particularly as maybe they've gotten access to credible information from trusted messengers? And do you think that reluctance is fading and that maybe that's that community is it's a smaller cohort now of the vaccine hesitancy group? The the prevailing thought at the beginning was that because of maltreatment and a history of maltreatment from the medical profession and government uh, research against people of color, that like that would be the major hesitancy. And I we did see some of that, but I think it's really hard and it's really misinformed of us to lump that big badge on anyone. Like why are conservatives against the vaccine? Well, there's a lots of reasons, you know, why are, and so why are BIPOC people, they're hesitant against the vaccine. Why do they feel this way? Well, there's a lot of different reasons. It's not so easy to just to ascribe a single narrative for all hesitancy. But I do think that there was a lot of issues of access. That is something that we have seen sort of managed as vaccines became more available. Um, Also, community members in um, Black, Latino, Indigenous communities have been very good at getting the vaccine to their communities, going where people are. Um, So that's a lesson to all of us. 
So I want to talk more about like the spread of misinformation online. We spoke to Dr. Erica Pond of the California Center for Infectious Diseases, and she told us that they have a dedicated team that monitors misinformation online and then even reports it to the social media companies, you know, with the idea that they will remove it or flag it. Have you heard about this? And do you have any kind of sense of how well social media platforms have performed in removing vaccine misinformation based on this kind of guidance? The social media platforms do this thing every couple of months where they just say, we have removed 30,000 posts or we have removed a million COVID vaccine posts. That doesn't mean anything to me. I feel like that's just throwing numbers at somebody. So you say, wow, that's a lot. And then go about your day. How, how they're doing is, is a complicated question because is social media free from misinformation? Absolutely not. The problem with these companies is that they're very large and they make decisions based on negative press or political pressure or whatever it is. So let's just look at Facebook because they're the biggest and I think the most dangerous in terms of misinformation that we're seeing. Mark Zuckerberg, the uh, CEO of Facebook, stringently believes that his company should not be the arbiter of truth. He thinks that more information is better. And he, because of that edict, he has long guided the company into not removing or not really doing anything for a long, long time with anti-vaccination. Totally. They do these like inch by inch baby step policy decisions. So they ban ads, right? And then they'll reduce the reach of vaccine misinformation, but then they'll remove specific misinformation, but only if it's been specifically debunked by the WHO. But now it's like at this place where, because we see how vaccine misinformation spreads, it's actually not usually through these top-down um, big posts about with links. It's, it's actually spreading through stories, firsthand accounts, right? Of people who claim their children or now themselves were injured by these vaccines. That's always the way that this misinformation has worked. You know, you can look at the documentary Vaxxed that has red-pilled so many people against vaccines. And all that is, is a compilation of stories of tragic stories of women and, and parents who think that their children were injured by vaccines. If a woman's posting my child has autism now because of this vaccine, how can I fact check that? I can't fact check a person's experience. And this is what moves on Facebook and social is people's stories. I think it's, it is really something that just last week, Facebook said that they were going to start reducing or removing um, stories if they seem directly aimed at discouraging vaccines. So shocking stories about vaccine injuries. I don't know though. It's, it's, it's super tough. I would not want to be in charge of, of this at, at any of the social media companies. It's, it's a hard one. Yeah. So in January, Twitter launched something called Birdwatch, a forum to monitor misinformation. It, not like necessarily about the vaccines, but more general. Uh, have you seen any kind of evidence that it's helped reduce misinformation there? You have to commend Twitter in a way because when they hear complaints, they do listen and they are very, they're just creative in terms of, of trying new things. A lot of them aren't going to work. And Birdwatch was this really 
great idea, kind of, where they thought, okay, what's what works well, right, on the internet? And Wikipedia works really well. In a lot of ways, Reddit works really well because it's crowdsourced information, but with a very high-minded sort of structure, which makes it so that best information rises to the top based on votes and and you have like moderators or people that are that are tasked with being in charge of this information that clearly care about the subject and who are known to be good stewards of this role but <laughs> birdwatch in its current iteration it might get better um, but what it is is it's just turned into this is just hyper partisan political and it's it's just not working yet um, unfortunately I feel like we've kind of touched on this throughout the interview, but how did getting vaccinated just become so politicized? Oh, man. You know, I think everything is politicized right now, right? Like Dr. Seuss and the the storms in Texas and this gas stuff. I mean, just everything is so political. And so, of course, this would be too, unfortunately. I mean, you would hope that this would sort of rise above because we have such a long history of faith in vaccinations and we have such a long, um, we just know that they work and they work well. And so, um, yeah, you might think that they would escape this moment, but it seems that they haven't. I think again, like if we look to the spring in 2020, we just really saw those anti-lockdown protests became about liberty and freedom and, and anti-government. And, you know, that is just basically repackaged libertarian, ultra-conservative messaging. So it really, it really stuck. Right. It's part of the country's history, I guess. Um, I want to turn to sort of a more personal question for you. Uh, You know, there's, there's obviously so much misinformation about COVID-19, the vaccines. How do you choose which to report on? And honestly, does it get draining sometimes? And how do you keep going? It is draining only because it, it feels like I've been writing the same story for years and years. The stakes got a lot higher in 2020, but they're the same players. These are the same stories. The story of this person is lying to you and their lies are going viral crazy because social media works in a way that sends you bad content like this. And now it's on Fox News and you know, my dad's hearing it. That's the frustrating thing, I think, is just sort of shouting into the wind. In terms of what we cover, I mean, we adhere to the idea of a tipping point. um, And we just think about it a lot, like whether the work that we do is going to be doing more harm than good. Um, And so we we try to be thoughtful of that and and not amplify bad messages. Um, And I mean, you know, I'm fine. <laughs> this is, I mean, whatever. It's I'm vaccinated. I'm double vaxxed. I, it's my job. I feel that it's important. I hope that it's important, um, but it's okay. I guess my thought is that I'm still sort of hopeful that despite this misinformation, that there are a lot of people out there who generally have good, fair questions about vaccines. And once they can see with their own eyes, like people going outside and churches reconvening and like all these things sort of happening with people who are vaccinated and feel great and feel fine and be off their computers a little more. I, I, I hope that the, the vaccination rate will increase because um, people will have seen it. Right. Like the proof is in the pudding. I mean, we're already seeing the 
positivity rates going down, where there are high uh, rates of vaccination. So, I mean, some of that evidence is already starting to show. And then I think we're also in, in some places anyway, starting to actually experiencing experience that opening up. Yeah. And I think it's important to not to like, not to take agency away from people. We talk a lot about misinformation and we, you know, I think it's an incredibly important field. It is my whole field, but I think it's also important to remember that, you know, people are smart. People have real live communities that they um, talk to and that can influence them. People have, you know, personal doctors that they trust. I was just on this like anti-vaccine group the other day. And this woman was talking about her experience and she said that she wasn't going to get vaccinated. She was totally against the vaccination. And then her son said to her, don't you want to see your grandchild? You know, if you're going to take the risk with COVID, why not take the risk with the vaccine? And she said, okay. So she just got vaccinated and she's like, and I'm fine and nothing happened to me. And so like these little stories of real life interactions, I think will become more common. I think the other thing is people are being really driven by their values. And then with that example, you just gave the sun is presenting another value, right? Like, okay, you, you value your health, you value your life and your safety, but then he's also, he's sort of presenting an alternate value for her to put above that fear that she might have. Um, but anyway, thank you so much, Brandy. This has been really helpful. It's great to talk to you and uh, to get such a clear idea on the landscape of misinformation and, and, you know, and how it's causing vaccine hesitancy. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Thanks to Dr. Erica Pond and NBC reporter Brandy Zadrozny for joining us for this special episode. For more information on combating COVID-19 vaccine misinformation, visit newslit.org slash coronavirus. There, you'll find links to reliable sources of information on the virus and vaccines, articles addressing the full spectrum of vaccine hesitancy, sites that debunk many of the myths surrounding the shots and the virus, and much more. Is That a Fact is a production of the News Literacy Project, a nonpartisan education nonprofit helping educators, students, and the general public become news literate so they can be active consumers of news and information and equal and engaged participants in a democracy. I'm your host, Dara Warland. Our producer is Mike Webb, and the editor of the episode is Timothy Kramer. Our music is by Aaron Bush. To learn more about the News Literacy Project, go to newslit.org. Thanks for listening.